Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're talking about the ark and the temple, meeting God in the past, present, and future. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. And today we're going to look at the origins of the Ark of the Covenant. And to do that, we're going to start with a story that goes really before the Bible and actually before recorded human history. Uh, Deep in a crack of the earth called the Jordan Rift Valley that runs from, say, Ethiopia into Syria and in the Judean wilderness that is now the West Bank of the Jordan River. So this part the Jordan Rift Valley, there's an oasis and a town called Jericho, which claims to be the oldest continually inhabited city in the world at 10,000 years old. Yeah, this is Jericho. This is the walls of Jericho came a tumbling down Jericho. The Jericho from the Bible claims to be the oldest city. And Jericho is a living witness today. People still live there to something that we call the agricultural revolution, which sounds like a mouthful, but it's not. It's when humans stopped living a hunter-gatherer existence, which some form of humanity did this for a million years, and then they just settled down and built cities. So the agricultural revolution is really the domestication of wheat when you stop chasing the weather and chasing the food and you and you stay put. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 in our Bibles is actually about that. It's a poetic rendering of a human descent, really, from a garden in chapters 1 and 2 to a city in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. The Bible, in seen in this way, is a remarkably intelligent and relevant book, actually. And we can be tempted to think of cities as an upgrade in some sort of humanity, right? Maybe we don't have any evidence outside of a cave painting of hunter-gatherer existence, and then suddenly with cities, we see statues and monuments or walls or things that we could put in museums, and we can think of this as a development of humanity. Uh, But actually, I don't believe it's an upgrade at all, because when humans started living in this way, they're now stratified in a way that God didn't intend in the garden. Uh, They have a limited diet in a way that God didn't intend in the garden, and they have a crushing work week in a way that God didn't intend in the garden, if we're going to read Genesis 1 through 11 in that way. And even most importantly, for the purposes of the Old Testament, suddenly they're not chasing the weather anymore, so you need rain. I've said this in other podcasts, the whole golden calf thing in the Old Testament is that it's a rain god, so God's people would hedge their bets because they were afraid. Well, that all starts 10,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago, writing was invented in this context. Writing was invented to record grain or record the buying of grain. Writing was then later invented to secure the position of the dynasty because only the very wealthy and the elites could read. And then writing was invented to proclaim the king divine. It was written for propaganda purposes. And the Bible, as history goes, then begins some 4,000 years ago as a man named Abram is called to leave a city. Get it? In Genesis chapter 12, he's called to leave this kind of life and go be different so that his family can be different and so that they can be a light to enlighten the world and they can be different in the way that God asked them to be different, which is to say fair and equal and care for each other and live in family groups and and to have a do-over perhaps. And we're told in the book of Genesis that Abram would become a nomad. He would travel back and forth and back and forth uh, to places that you could find on a map today between two water dynasties, Mesopotamia in the northeast and Egypt in the southwest, which were huge countries with secure 
empires and rivers of water, uh, agricultural super cities, if you will. And keep reading Genesis, and it comes to pass that eventually Abraham's people would travel to Egypt to avoid famine. And in the book of Exodus, we're told they're enslaved because that's what cities do. God asked Abram to leave a city, and they, yet they couldn't avoid it. And due to a famine, they end up becoming entrapped by the very thing that God laments, the city. Now, keep reading Exodus, and we're told that God's people are delivered, right? And that Moses would, would perform signs and wonders, plagues, river turned to blood, darkness, death of the firstborn. There's a bunch of them, 10 of them. They're awful. Uh, and then eventually the Red Sea is parted, and then they're taken into the wilderness to begin a new country. Uh, The very origin story of Israel would be the rescue of slaves, which is something only God can do. Archaeologists will argue over the history of the Exodus, and they wonder if it's just a national story, like George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. They say this because they can't find extra biblical sources about the Hebrews and Pharaoh and Egypt and deliverance and that sort of thing, although there are written in in Egyptian hieroglyphics from the second millennium B.C. of a people called the Habiru, uh, which are outlaws, and this, this could be a reference to what the Egyptians thought about the Hebrews. And then they just can't find any archaeology about it. But there is a possible answer about Exodus, and and I really lean into this. First of all, I don't believe that any pharaoh, any any leader of a city would admit to this kind of defeat, losing an enslaved people to the enslaved person's God. I don't think they would write that stuff down. And also, roaming camps in the wilderness just don't leave any evidence in the desert. Besides, if you read the book of Exodus carefully, you'll see that it isn't concerned with the particular historic Pharaoh. He's just Pharaoh. He's just the king. In the book of Exodus, God gets a name, but he's just a king. Kings are kings. Kings are people, and we're all equal under God, and God gets the name, I am. And so after all these signs and wonders, God brings them out from bondage, and only God can do it. And now they get to start over, just like Abram in Genesis chapter 12. We're getting me close to the ark here. Here in the desert of freedom, God takes them to a mountain, as opposed to a pyramid, takes them to a mountain, something God does, as opposed to something that a human will do. And he takes them to this mountain and uses the new technology, writing, to convey the divine mind. With God's own finger, God writes 10 commandments, or 10 ends for humanity to be different in the way that God always asks him to be different. The first four are about union with God. The last six are union with each other. We're told that Moses stayed on the mountain too long for this first iteration of the Ten Commandments. As he came down, God's people had already got distracted. They were uh, acting like a city again. They built uh, a golden calf again. They were cavorting again, not being different again. And so he broke the first tablets in anger. But in Exodus 34, God gives Moses a second chance. And this time, Moses is asked to choose the tablets that God writes on so that, so that God and man work together in this instance. And so in Exodus 34, the Ten Commandments are created again as grace. These two will be carried in something called the Ark of the Covenant, the dust of the broken ones and the tablets themselves. So let's think about the Ark of the Covenant for a second. Now that we've got the background to its reason for being, according to Exodus 37, a chest of acacia wood was covered in pure gold with an elaborate lid called the mercy seat and carried between two poles and covered with an, with an ornate cover uh, of leather so that only the Aaronite priests could see it. 
But I want to take a break here and say just because the ark was portable, it didn't mean that it wasn't important. As a matter of fact, it even to be dangerous. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're told that the ark was actually captured in battle. Um, Phineas and Hophni, these were the sons of the high priest Eli, all Aaronite priests and all serving the ark, had the bright idea of using the ark as a totem in battle as they were killed. And when the high priest learned that the ark was lost, he too died of shock, actually, to lose the thing. They actually lost the presence of God. The Philistines who captured it soon wished they hadn't taken it at all. And I want to read a chapter from you from 1 Samuel chapter 5, just a few verses that describe what happened when uh, when this foreign army has the possession of the presence of God. It's 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and placed it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off at the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not step on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and struck them with tumors both in Ashdod and in its territory. And when the inhabitants of Ashdod saw how these things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain for us, for his hand is heavy on us and our God Dagon. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? The inhabitants of Gath replied, Let the ark of God be moved on to us. So they moved the ark of God of Israel to Gath. But after they brought it to Gath, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. He struck the inhabitants of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Israel, to Ekron. But when the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, Why have they brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people? They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and those who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. To paraphrase the later verses, basically, they hot potato the ark around for seven months from town to town, finally landing in Ekron, and they put together a chest for the ark with two milch cows, meaning cows that have just had a calf, and the milch cows were intended to uh, pull the ark away to the nearest city, which is the city of Beth Shemesh. This, too, is a miracle if you know anything about farming, because a cow who's had a calf is not going to leave the calf, but these cows do. They pull it in a straight line, and this, this wagon carrying the ark is laden with images of tumors and mice. We're also told later that they had mice ravaging the land. Now, a couple of things I'll say about this. Uh, one, uh, I do believe that this is a description of bubonic plague with, with mice and then the tumors upon them. It sounds just like a medieval uh, description of what happened. Uh, so, so they had a they had a bad run uh, as they as they carried the ark. The other thing I want to explain to you is that in the ancient world, uh, people would go to a healing place. It was called an Asclepian, 
and they would go to a healing pool or to a physician, and they would bring a representation of whatever's bothering them. So if they had a bad knee, they would bring a representation of a knee or a representation of a head or an arm. And so they're sending these golden representations of what is worrying them uh, to Bet Shemesh. And so the ark is returned to God's people in a straight line about five miles from Ekron. Well, if you keep reading, uh, the people of Bet Shemesh just rejoice greatly. Uh, they 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 put it on a great rock and they worship there. And and the ark of the ark of God is now returned to them, uh, portable, yes, uh, but also important and dangerous. And then we read in First Samuel chapter six. This little verse is First uh, Samuel chapter six, verse nineteen. It goes like this. Uh, this is a this is an, a Hebrew. The descendants of Jeconiah did not rejoice with the people of Bet Shemesh when they greeted the ark of the Lord, and he killed seventy of them which is a strange verse, except when you look down at the notes, you realize that the Hebrew is written away, which is to say that Jeconiah and his sons looked into the ark. Again, you, it's portable, but don't mess with it, right? Seventy are killed when they look at it. And as I mentioned in the first podcast, Saul pretty much ignored the ark. Uh, he, he left it to Samuel and his devices until David becomes the king and decides to bring it to his capital city. And later in the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this poor guy named Uzzah is simply trying to carry it. He reaches out and touches it, although he's not uh, qualified to do so, and he's struck down dead. I think the point I'm trying to make here is that the ark is the power of God to save and to destroy and to command holiness, even though it's in a tent. I like to say that this original idea of the Ark of the Covenant and then the tent that would surround it would be the ideal religion that God would want us to have. It's more of a garden religion than a city religion. It's more of a Genesis chapter 1 and 2 religion than a Genesis 11 religion. And this is what I mean. God wants our relationship with God to be intentional, uh, but also nimble. We need to be able to be thoughtful about what we're doing, but we also need to be able to pivot and to carry as necessary. And so the Ark of the Covenant would be ideal to lead them through the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant would be perfect to help Joshua defeat his enemies, topple the walls of Jericho, and secure God's promised land, dwelling in a tent until finally King Solomon, the son of King David, would build a temple for it in Jerusalem. Now, we have temple stories for other podcasts, but here the ark would rest until 586 B.C., which is about 400-some years and change, until finally the city of Jerusalem is destroyed forever in the August of that year, 586, and it is lost forever. You can look up Ark of the Covenant uh, online, and you can find all sorts of theories about what happened to it, even, even more fantastical than the movie that I grew up with, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, there's a little shrine in Ethiopia that claims to have the ark and an order of monks who tend the ark uh, day and night, although a British explorer looked at it in, in the 1940s and said, I'm pretty sure it's not the ark. And, and then one little tribe in Zimbabwe even claims that the ark uh, was brought to that country and then eventually disappeared. I'm pretty sure the Babylonians did what, what Babylonians do, which is to say that the city had no uh, the city people had no respect for the divine. They probably just melted the thing down and it became their coins or something. In other words, the ark just began gone to them because it didn't mean anything to them. But what I'd like to say that after the lost ark is that we, we will continue to see a repeating theme in Scripture, which is to say that in the Bible, there's always a gap between God's dream and then our ability to keep up with it. So in the prehistory that I talk about, hunter-gatherers become cities. That's not God's dream. Uh, 
uh, in, in the biblical story, God's people are given the Ten Commandments, and then those are lost to a foreign army. And then in the history of God's people, they, they get to go home, and the exile didn't last forever. They were taken away to Babylon for 70 years, and they come back, and they rebuild. They build a temple with an empty room. There's no ark anymore. But they get the religion. They lost their temple, but they write down the Bible. But by the time you get to Jesus and we begin the New Testament, these 10 laws become 613. 613. This, too, is a gap between God's dream and our reality, because you could hide between 613 rules uh, as opposed to 10 precepts or ends that connect us with God and with people. So enter Jesus into this world. We often fail to see the Gospels as a continuation of the old, old story. We often fail to see the story of Jesus as a repeat of something that had happened before, like Genesis chapter 12 or even Exodus, perhaps. But Jesus didn't come to form a new religion. He was born and he died and was resurrected within his beloved Judaism. I believe that Jesus came to save us and to return us to God's dream, to close the gap. And there are two chapters in Matthew's gospel that feel like a do-over in light of the lost ark that connect us to what had been lost in 586 BC when the golden box disappeared. And the first one of these is Genesis chapter 4. As Jesus is led into the wilderness after his baptism, before his public ministry on earth, he's led into the wilderness of Judea, which is in the shadow of Jericho, the place of our original sin. I'm going to read just a few verses to you. This is Matthew chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Pay attention to numbers in Scripture. They're they're important and they're symbolic. Anytime you see the number 40, that's God's time. That's 40 years wandering in the wilderness or 40 days upon the mountain. And then here in the shadow of Jericho, uh, Jesus dwells with God. In God's time, uh, then the devil approaches him uh, while he is uh, preparing for his ministry, while he's thinking about his role, while he's becoming a do-over, if you will, in the old, old story. And the devil comes to, to Jesus with three basic human needs. He comes to him with the temptation to food, uh, food, certainty, or control. And here Jesus shows uh, us, the devil, uh, and us a new humanity, a new way of living, a, a way of living that's not dependent upon our own appetites, but rather a way of living that is dependent on on God and each other, which was the ten, which would be the ten original ends. And on the last night of Jesus' life, he is dragged up steps that you can see today beneath the pinnacle of the temple that you can see today. And I wonder if he looked up. I wonder if he looked up and knew 
that he did not have to go the distance, but he did. I wonder if he looked up and knew that he didn't have to work the plan, but he did in order to close the gap between God's dream and our failure uh, to live up to it. Jesus saved us in this way, brought us back in union with God and each other, just like the tablets in the ark. In the next chapter of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up a mountain uh, to teach them, right? A mountain, just like Moses went up a mountain, Jesus goes up a mountain and he sits to teach and he begins his famous inaugural address that we call the Sermon on the Mount uh, with 10 Beatitudes. We call them Beatitudes because they begin with the word blessed. And in that word blessed, actually, it's if you want to connect it to the original Aramaic word, which this is what Jesus would have spoken, it really means happy. How to be happy. 10, ten ways to be happy, 10 ends. Uh, And the first four are union with God, and the last six are union with neighbor. And this is no accident. This is a do-over. These are the new ten commandments, if you will, because ten are all we ever needed. And ten were all they ever carried in the ark. So to recap, God wants a religion that is intentional but nimble. God wants us to be in relationship with God and with each other. Uh, God asked them to create an ark that they could carry around and be reminded. The temple would make this religion fixed and would bring its own problems. But we will continue to see the tension between the two as we go through these old stories. But please remember, in Jesus, the gap is closed. Thanks be to God. See you next time.